I was teaching a class once and uh, just a few years ago, and we had people from different ages in the class, and I, I said, in the last session, I want to do some Q&A. Would you please just take a three-by-five card, write your question down on it, and I'll try to answer as many as I can. I'll never forget one of them. I still have it written in um, kind of weak font. It just said, I've done this 30 years and I've run out of things to say. Uh, that is a place to be. Uh, that's a desert when you're in that place because you know that every Sunday is a term paper, basically. And, uh, and it starts out with just a blank sheet of paper. And to go from that to the term paper every Sunday is a regimen and it's a discipline and it requires creativity. Uh, and so I know that's where many of you are. And my hope for you in this last day is that something that was said has sparked an imagination. It's caused some creativity to come across right now where you're getting things. You can say, wait a minute, I can put that together with something else. And you can go back and now you can start afresh and do some new things. We've uh, passed out, I think, a short list of books that I have read in the last three or four years, mostly on the theme of exile. Um, did you get that or not? Okay, I was going to say I'll send it to you telepathically, if not. Uh, and you don't have to get them all. Just look at the ones that maybe um, you know catch your eye or something, and you can um, get those either Amazon uh, or some other place. But they'll cover it from different angles. They don't all agree, but those things together with what you're hearing here, I hope will start to infuse your preaching and your ministry with new ideas. I was in Lexington, Kentucky when the news broke, preaching at Asbury. Kentucky's Rowan County clerk, Kim Davis, had refused to sign a marriage license for gay couples. You remember this. She said it was against her religious convictions, and she refused to let her assistants sign too. And within hours after she refused to do it, there were news reporters and more gay couples outside of her office. She was asked by a judge that day to give an account for her refusal to do it, and then the judge asked her to give her assistants permission to do it, and when she promptly refused, the judge deliberated. And when I, got, I read the headline in the newspaper, it simply said that Kim Davis's fate was in the judge's hands. He would decide that day. I shoved the newspaper in my backpack, spoke in the chapel, got in the car, drove home. By the time I got here, she was in jail. When I read it, I knew that it was one of those watershed moments. You know, you're always looking for those signature events where all of a sudden the state of things become clear, unmistakable. And I knew when I read it that it was not really about religious freedom and it was not really about gay marriage. It was really about two conflicting freedoms happening at the same time. One, the freedom to marry whoever you want, and the other, the freedom to practice your religious convictions. Or it was a conflict 
between two entities, the individual versus the state. But whatever it was, it wasn't really about gay marriage. That was simply a lightning rod for all of the friction that was in the air. It hit that issue. By the time I got back to the church, my church was abuzz with the news. They were talking about it. And you can imagine in a church like this one, we have five generations in the room on any given Sunday. And so their opinions on this is quite varied. Some of them were saying, you know, see, that's exactly what I thought. That's exactly what's happened to us. We were once in the center and we just got moved to the margins. And other people were saying, we were never really in the center. Your problem is that you wanted the center and you were never there. And so it was hard to imagine how we were going to talk about this. But um, in an act of foolishness, I used it as an opening illustration the following Sunday. And there was another lightning rod that happened. And I discovered suddenly that what Ken was saying a few sessions ago is exactly the case. There's one generation who wants to get back to the center and another generation who just wants to get back to the church but feels that they can't get back to the church because the church keeps wanting to get back to the center. And I was preaching through exile at that time and then when the series unfolded, a third party emerged and introduced themselves to me And this was the older and oppressed minorities, whether ethnic minorities, whether the poor or the impoverished, whether those uh, who were women or those who were persecuted in their work environment, they suddenly emerged and said, we're living in exile too. (laughs) And our problem is our exile is caused by one of them who wants in the middle And it's being ignored by the others who don't want to be in the middle. We've been burned twice. And this is one of those moments where you say, I hate my job. (laughs) I learned uh, pretty quickly that uh, exile is a complex thing. I learned that when you tell high-profile stories like the Kim Davis story, it attracts a lot of emotion because people bring their personal stories into the room, and the moment you tell that story, you light their stories on fire, and all of their stuff is coming out. I learned that when one person gets what they want and they go back to the center, another person goes into exile. So I learned that when you speak about exile in your church, I'm just telling you, you don't have to do this if you don't want. I'm just giving you the advice. You know what they say? They say experience is a great teacher, but sometimes it's nice to let the rattlesnake bite the other fella. So he bit me. I'm giving you advice. 
What I learned is when you start describing the kind of world you want, you better be careful because that's exactly the world somebody else is afraid of. But you don't know it because it's the only world, the only dream that you ever had. So you literally walk on eggshells when you talk about this. But you have to talk about this. You have to describe the situation. You just have to be careful about the cure. Real careful about the cure. So in an effort to touch that for a moment, can I tell you some things I would do differently if I could go back and do that series again? Can I tell I'm going to tell you anyway, so just nod. <laughs> First, um, I would have expanded my focus group. Rather than bouncing my ideas off of a few, which is my practice, all white, all professional, all happily married and employed, I would have brought my ideas into a broader spectrum for a focus group. I would have included different generations, different socioeconomic criteria or strata. I would have included different ethnicities, and I would have pitched the idea and said, this is what I'm thinking, now tell me what you heard. And tell me where the blind spots are. And... Can we together figure out what we all agree is the kingdom of God? Not what I think it is, but what we all say it is when we all read the text. That's the first thing I would have done. Next, I would have told the people earlier in the series that I was going to tackle some of the questions that inevitably arise. When you tell people that they're living on the margins, the first thing they do is quit. They just go, well, fine. I guess we just, I would have talked to them earlier in the series about how to engage people in power, how to influence from whatever situation you're in how to speak up, how to lead up to power. Now, we covered that, but we covered it too late in the series. So by the time we got to that stuff, uh, I was in exile. (laughs) So I would have at least promised it earlier, and then I would have used character stories in the Bible to relay the information. Not what I did. I went to Leviticus Okay, that's a dumb idea. (laughs) See, in Leviticus, there's this wonderful middle section called the Holiness Code. You may not know this, from chapter 17 to chapter 24, that was actually finally codified just before Israel went into exile. And when I found this, I went, bam, we got this. And so I started drawing out sermons from Leviticus what an idiot. I should have stayed in the character studies because people in all situations 
can hear themselves in some character, not in a proposition. Let them enter the life of a character and move him around and they will find themselves and they'll come to their own conclusions. You don't have to tell them. Third, I would have had somebody from one of these other groups, younger, different ethnicity, female, lower socioeconomic, I would have let them preach one of the sermons. Four, I would have stressed that sometimes exile does not end in a return. It doesn't end happily. Those of you that know your Bible know there are two outcomes for exile. One of them is a return, and the other one is the diaspora. And in the return, everybody in exile from Babylon comes home to a thing called normalcy. And so what I found in my church was, while I was preaching this, they're all waiting eagerly for exile to end so they can get back to normal. What they don't know is that God may have a new normal in mind. He may be asking us to permanently relocate in another land, and we ain't coming back. So we have to find new traditions or modify the old ones and new definitions of holiness that Matt talked about that work in this new land. Otherwise, they'll feel cheated when they don't get it back someday. And last... I would have established core practices that the whole church was doing together. So that when we did all of these, the whole church I mean, and we, I don't mean together as a church, I mean we did them simultaneously in our community. So that when I released 1,500 people every week, they would go out all across Grant County and they would all be committed to the same few core practices. And that together we would bear corporate witness to a different kind of life. Because that's unleashing the power of the church. Now we did an all-church campaign, but we didn't do that. It wasn't that simple. It was, ours was too complex. We'll fix that the next time. But I really believe in this. If we can find out the places where society is the most broken, and then call people to live as one in the opposite direction, we bear powerful witness to the dominant culture. We don't have to convince them. They look over and see a better way. So if the culture is filled with greed, then we release people every Sunday to be generous. Because when you give money away, you break the power of money. You don't preach to the greedy. You just practice generosity. And when they look over and see you and say, how is it that he has a fraction of my income but ten times my happiness? That's a witness. So we don't have to stand up and tell people Fight for the definition of marriage. We just have to tell our people, stay married. 
And that is not obvious today. And honor your vows and invest yourself fully in the marriage you have, not the one you wish you had. You don't have to protest Wall Street. You just got to give your stuff away. Don't have to make blog statements about this person or that person or what you're which quit writing blogs like that. Forgive your enemies. Just forgive your enemies and quit writing about them. Seriously. Now it's quiet in here. Either you're tired or there's game in the area. So I would have called people to make hard, sacrificial, demanding, countercultural, agreed upon corporate practices and tried to release that across the community and then let the church catalytic affect Grant County. Our story in exile is borne out by many, 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 many characters in the Bible. If you're still not sure what or how to preach this, let me give you a few of them. Abraham is one. Sarah is one. Moses. Joseph. David. Hannah. The prophets. Elizabeth, Jesus, John the Baptist, Peter, John. Other than that, not much in the Bible. That's a load of stuff. And if you would put their stories in front of you right now and you'd read them simultaneously, you'd start to notice a pattern. It's a pattern that emerges. And I think everybody in exile, it does not matter whether it's an individual who's experiencing a personal exile or it's a congregation going through it together or it's a whole generation. I think the pattern holds true in individuals on up. I'm going to give you three words for it. The first is grief. The second is hope. And the third is patience. I think of these as almost three legs to a stool. But I'm putting arrows on there to illustrate a couple of things. One is that when these, I'm going to call them dispositions, when these dispositions happen to us, I mean, when it first occurs to us that we are in exile, uh, they, they seem to happen in this sequence. We almost never start with hope. We almost always start with some form of grief. Something has been lost. But as soon as something is lost, God makes a promise. And hope is kindled. But God has a pattern of making promises and then doing promptly nothing right after that. 
Yeah, you know this, don't you? Sarah, you'll have a baby any day now. 17 years later. It, and so it causes patience. So what I'm saying is when people go into exile or they discover there's a signature event and you say, holy cow, this is that moment, we are suddenly thrust into this period of grief and we wait for God to say something and then we have to wait for what he said to happen. So grief happens when we face the reality of what has just occurred. Hope happens whenever God breathes a promise into our reality. And patience happens when we begin to practice the faith and the courage and the virtue to live up under the time in between. So the point I'm making first is that they, they, they seem to happen one after the other, but then after all three of them have happened, we have to hold them in balance. Now let me say that in slow motion. You can't let one of these things go in order to do another one. You have to hold all three of these dispositions simultaneously throughout the entire period of exile. Now there will be seasons when one of these will be heightened and the other two lessened, but you never really let go of the other two. I mean, we know this is right because remember when Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. So he's talking about two of these dispositions happening at the same time. And what is that hope, Paul? For he says, we know that in the final day, Christ will return. Where is he? So he throws us into a period of waiting. So in Paul's first, this is just one example. I won't go to the other one. In Paul's, oh man, move. How do I move? Move. Move. I hate this thing. Move. There he goes. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, all three of these dispositions are happening simultaneously. They have to be held in balance. The capacity to hold these three things in balance marks the mature soul in a period of exile. Let me go into what they are. Grief, as I just said, is a sadness and a loss. Let me push it. An acceptance, no, no, an acceptance, an embrace of what has just happened. Our problem with grieving is that we often never get there. Because grieving begins with an acquiescence to what has happened. But what we do is we'll sputter and strive and protest and connive and clamor for as long as we can. And as long as we're doing these things, we're trying to maintain a little bit of control. We'll hold grudges. And a grudge is a form of control. You can do what you want. 
but I can do what I want, and I hate you for it. You see what I mean? I say, at least I have this little square inch. We haven't grieved yet. So whenever tragedy happens, there's a resignation. We resign. We embrace it and say, this is true. And then right after the resignation, we quit. So, I mean, you think about this. We are not good at staying in relationships that are not easy for us because we don't have enough control. We're not good at still wanting something that somebody took from us. What we said, I didn't want it anyway. And as long as we do this, we cannot get to grieving. Because to grieve is to want something that you can't have and you have no way of getting it. It's to be stuck with something that you don't want and you can't get rid of it. It's to lose something that you can't get back, but you can't stop wanting it. Ah, now you're ready to grieve. Boy, this is one sad part of the sermon. But you see what I mean about this? We have such a fix-it mentality. We want to rush right past grief, and we do not let blessed are the mournful. Not the fixers. The enemy of grief is control. Hope is the capacity to lean in, to hear God say something and to believe it. Uh, Jürgen Moltmann in his Theology of Hope says there's two kinds of hope. You'll recognize them. One he calls a futurum, in the other he calls an adventus. A futurum, he says, is a kind of hope that simply looks behind or looks around us and it sees what is already happening and then it starts to take from what is happening and project onto the future. It's based upon the evidence, based upon what I can see, it looks like this is the likely prognosis. And if the prognosis is good, then... Hope rises. Adventus, on the other hand, is something coming from the outside and breaking into the prison and opening doors that no one else could open. So when the Bible speaks to us of a hope church, it is not talking about a projection. No, no. It is talking about God opening the door of history, unlocking things that we could not unlock, God doing things you cannot foresee. And when he's done doing them, you can't figure it out. That's the kind of hope that we're talking about when God makes a promise. So, Amidst our grief, we have to remember the situation is what it is. I wish so much it were different. And yet at the same time, God is 
prophesying or predicting another situation which throws me into the patience. Let me get the definition right. To be patient is to wait for something, to slow down to allow God to determine both the shape and the timing of what is to come. Like a pregnant woman. She cannot hurry this. It takes as long as it takes. And the waiting is actually what produces the promise. Paula Gooder writes, When I was pregnant with my first child, I realized that I'd completely misunderstood what waiting was all about. I have a low threshold for boredom, and so I'm very bad at waiting. Waiting makes me anxious, restless, uneasy. Imagine my amusement to encounter an experience that is entirely about waiting. No one who's expecting a child wants the waiting to end and the baby to come early. That can only spell heartache. The only thing to do in pregnancy is to wait. And not only that, but to hope against hope that the period of waiting does not end prematurely. I began to discover that waiting is not just about passing time, it has deep, lasting value in and of itself. I discovered that waiting can be a nurturing time, that waiting is as active an occupation as one could ever have. Waiting can be profoundly creative, involving slow growth to new life. And the loss of our ability to wait often brings with it the inability to be fully and joyfully present now. Instead, we are always looking back to better times or we are always looking forward to better times. And the more we do this, we miss the perfect present. What a line. So when we wait on the promise that God has given us, we bond slowly to the promise. This is the tragedy of people who live in a fast-paced, instant gratification society by not having to wait for most things. They don't even know what it is to want them anymore. Because you don't have to. Two days, free delivery. My argument in this last session is that to guide our people through the period of exile, we have to nurture all three of these dispositions simultaneously. One of them or another will be more prominent in seasons, but we will never let the other one go. My premise is that this is the target We are not trying to move people out of grief and into hope. We are trying to flavor their grief with hope so that they're mingled, so that the grief is optimistic 
But the hope is realistic. Because if they lose that, they can't connect with people who are still stuck in grief. So, so we have to develop all three of these things in the life of our congregation as we preach through exile. Here's just a few last things how we might do that. One, preach the promises. You guys, don't just preach people out of sin. Preach them into promises. Promises are the fuel of people in exile. But the reason we stop making promises is because they don't come true. Think about it. We have, I have actually pulled back on the things I say from the pulpit because, I mean, what if God, what if he doesn't? Because there's been a lot of times it looked like he didn't. And you know what I mean. Oh, he will. He didn't. They died. There is no happy return. And so what we tend to do is we tend to hedge our promises because we're still thinking in instant response. One of the best stories that I've heard of uh, exile came from a missionary. He said she was over, uh, overseas in a country in an e- Eastern European block. And um, she said, I was talking to a young Christian woman about being free, liberated. And she said with the most confident smile, she said, the day will come. God will deliver us. It will happen soon. Missionary said, when? She said, soon. Missionary said, in your lifetime, In your daughter's lifetime? No. In my granddaughter's lifetime. Then she went. Soon. People in exile have a different time. Their clocks run slower. They think in generations. Not weeks. So we have to incorporate in our people the capacity to wait patiently. To hear promises and at the same time wait for them. But by all means, preach promises. Second is there is in the Christian seasons a natural flow to this. Patience or waiting is a good time for you to focus in Advent. You all do Advent, don't you? Christmas, I mean. Jesus is coming. Stuff. The the word means arrival. But, of course, before the arrivals, the expectancy, the leaning in, but it's not here yet. That's a good time to focus on that. Lent is a good time to focus on grieving. 
And what might be a good time to focus on hope? Oh, you got it. A couple, uh, a few years ago, it occurred to me that, 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 that I'd spent four weeks in Advent. I'd spent six weeks in Lent and one day on Easter. That just seemed dumb. It was like, he's dying, he's dying, he's dying, he's dying, okay, he's dead. Well, he's alive, move on. I'm like, wait a second, isn't that the whole other half of the gospel? So we started expanding Easter series and doing six, six or so weeks. <laughs> we don't follow all the weeks around here, stop talking in the back. Last, um, incorporate testimonies. Incorporate testimonies in the life of the body. Uh, um, testimonies not only about hope, because that's what most testimonies are about, but testimonies uh, about people that are waiting in patience. Testimonies of people that are in between. Even testimonies of people that are modeling grief well. When I was a kid, we heard testimonies every Sunday night, but they were always from hopeful people. I knew people were struggling. They never testified. The other ones testified, and they'd stand up and quote some verse and say, the Lord's with me or something to the equivalent, and then they sat back down, and you would think the whole church was triumphant, but I knew better. I'm a preacher's kid. I'm thinking, man, half of you guys are wrecked right now. But they're not saying anything because it doesn't fit the aura. So there has to be graceful, tactful ways to allow people who are still in patience, their problem hasn't gone away, they can talk about it honestly, and they can talk about it really with confidence and with hope, but they still have their problem. And then those can be weaved into the services. Powerful how testimonies are coming back. And the church then is released to actually tell the story of exile. I'll stop talking right now. Let's talk about you. You know, as I finished preparing this, it occurred to me that um, most of us right now as leaders in a church are probably at some point in one of these three. Let me tell you what I mean. I think there are, there are some people right now that feel the weight of the world from your churches or your communities Everything you've tried has failed. There's a ton of opposition or there's some conflict going on right now. And you're angry. And you're labeling or you're naming. Listen to me. You can't grieve as long as you try to fight with your emotions and your feelings. The best thing you could do today is just get with somebody and grieve. I don't mean sob out loud. I just mean embrace what is happening. Say, I want more and I can't have it. And there's nothing I can do to get it right now. It's the powerlessness of this. And the best thing you can do is to let go of control and admit to the powerlessness. Also the hardest. Others uh, probably need hope. You need someone to speak a promise or a word into you. 
and say, remember, this is what God said. Remember? It hasn't happened, but it will. And then there's uh, some that maybe have started to detach, kind of withdrawn from the conflict. Or maybe you've been working hard in your churches and wanting things to change, and it hasn't changed yet, and you're starting to think, well, do I need to stay here? Do I just need to move on and find some place that does want to grow? And, and, and maybe what you need to do this afternoon is just to own it and to stay there. Maybe the hardest thing for you to do is the thing you're supposed to do, is to stay in the place and wait. 